Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, art and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect Magazine, and today I'm delighted to be joined by three truly fantastic guests. The first is podcaster and journalist Matilda Mallinson, who wrote a feature for the latest issue of Prospect about litigation against Shell over crude oil leaked into the Niger Delta. Hi, Matilda. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for having me. I'm also joined by Dr. Peddy Obani, who is an associate professor at Bradford University and who qualified as a barrister and solicitor at the Supreme Court of Nigeria before entering academia. Hi, Peddy. Hi, Ellen. Hello, everyone. And Matthew Renshaw, a partner in the international department at the law firm Lee Day, who is representing the Ogale and Bile communities in some of that litigation that Matilda has covered in her piece. Hi, Ellen. Hi, everyone. Looking forward to a good discussion. So the big question that I'm hoping we can explore today is how effective can litigation be in fighting for the climate? We're going to be talking about the specific case that Matilda's covered in her piece, the cases in the Niger Delta, but also looking a bit more widely about the trend of climate litigation that that we've seen growing over recent years. So Matilda, first of all, could you maybe tell us a little bit about the reporting that you did? What attracted you to this story and how did you go about trying to tell it? So when I look for stories, what I try to do as a journalist is to think about the voices that are missing or underrepresented in the conversation. And when it comes to the climate conversation, the voices that we don't hear enough of are the voices of people on the front lines living with the immediate consequences of environmental and climate damage. So... It was actually through a, an old uni friend who's working with Matthew at Lee Day who told me about this case happening in the Niger Delta. And here you have a community that has dealt with decades of oil contamination, devastating their livelihoods, their environment in which they live, and also their culture and their lifestyle because so much of their memories, so many of their traditions are based on rituals with the land and farming of the land. And so... They're facing a lot of grief, but also very practical day-to-day issues like not having enough food to eat or water to drink or medicine to source and seeing health problems arising from the oil contamination. And they have been, with the help of Lee Day, attempting to take Shell to court to pay compensation for the damage, but also 
to take serious action to prevent further damage from happening. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is we've seen lawsuits like this in the Niger Delta before, and actually you've seen a successful lawsuit launched by a community from Goy. And while it was successful in very recently granting significant amounts of compensation, it took such a long period of time Mm -hmm. that the community was evacuated and they can never go back Mm -hmm. to their home. So you kind of see the pros and cons of climate litigation through through that and, mm-hmm. and if you were asking whether climate litigation effectively holds corporations to account I think the question is what does accountability mean because mm-hmm. you know compensation maybe potentially but restoration no and from what I've heard from the communities I have spoken to if they were to a- answer the question are corporations being held to account effectively mm-hmm. I don't think that it would be a positive response yeah yeah Peddy, I wonder if I could come to you because obviously we're seeing these cases come to the fore now, passing through the courts now, but this history of fossil fuel companies, oil companies in the Niger Delta is long. Can you give us a little bit of context of, you know, it's not just Shell that's been there, there's multiple companies that have been working in the area. Who's been there? How long have they been there? And what kind of impact have they had on the region? Thanks a lot. And I think it's really interesting. Matilda touched on a very important point about litigation being something that helps the people on the front line, or at least should project the voices of the people on the front line. Now, all production goes back to the 1950s. And since then, we can already imagine the devastation that has occurred. Because of course, with the technology at the time, perhaps we could say people didn't really realize the impact it was causing on the environment, but also on the social fabric of the society, as well as on the economy and on the economy from the perspective of those who are vulnerable, especially the host communities. But today we can't give that excuse anymore because the technology is there, the awareness is there, and we can already see the kinds of devastations occurring. But I think more importantly, we can see the differences between the ways in which the oil exploration occurs in the Niger Delta, the way in which the damage is reacted to, and looking at it as the same way, if we look at other jurisdictions, similar companies, maybe even the same companies, but acting differently, following up differently when the spills occur. So there's clearly a difference. So in terms of devastation, we already know it's there in the media. We know it is widespread. We know it is long-standing. But we also know that there have been advances in the laws. And the question, I think, for me is also, how is the law responding to this? Has it been effective at all? So within the context of litigation, I think it would also depend on what we see as the main purpose of litigation, right? Is it just about compensation? I would say no. Because really, if it were effective, one of the first things would be to even deter the devastation in the first place. So the laws, the frameworks, the litigation should act as deterrence. We had Bemery's case as far back as 2005. And even in that judgment from the Federal High Court, it was clear that the flaring of gas was detrimental to human life, was violating the rights of the communities. But did it stop? No, it didn't. And this is now 2022, 2023. We're still talking about the same issues. So I think really the devastation is there. The laws are there, the litigation is there, but I'm hoping the more we talk about this, we'll see the relative strengths and weaknesses of litigation as a response to the devastation in the Niger Delta region. Yeah, thanks, Paddy. I'd love to come back about the value of litigation as a deterrent, as well as seeking some kind of reparation or sense of justice. But Matthew, maybe that's something we we can come to kind of from your perspective, because I'd love to know how Lee Day and how you became involved in what's the value of, of Lee Day's work in the area and why, why do you um, 
why did you choose this as a focus, I guess? Yeah, so just I, I'm just going to start just by adding to what Matilda said about these two specific communities, just to give context to the, this particular claim. So there's the Billet community, which is a riverine community. So it's a series of islands surrounded by water. And between 2011 and 2014, there were about 100 spills from Shell's pipelines and infrastructure around that community. And it's a fishing community. It's a, historically, anyway, the people fished for their livelihoods to feed their families, relying on a fertile mangrove habitat and ecology. Since those, that, those mangroves have been devastated, and you now have essentially a, a wasteland that surrounds where people are living. So again, just briefly on, on what that case is about. The Agale case is primarily about contamination of drinking water. So the UN, UNEP, went to Agale in 2011. They did testing and they found that there was an immediate danger to public health because of the oil contamination in that community. Since then, Shell, for about two years, because this is oil pollution that's alleged to be from Shell's pipelines, provided drinking water to the community. Since then, over the past few years, there's been nothing. And I, I've been to the community. I've seen the wells that people dig, the boreholes. When you turn on the tap, you get brown water from boreholes. And this is what many people are left to drink. This is what children are left to bathe in. So it's a chronic health emergency, and it's prevalent across many other communities in the Niger Delta. So we felt we had to act on this. Unfortunately, as Peddy referred to, there is not much enforcement of the law in Nigeria, there's not much accountability, and there is a widespread environmental and health catastrophe there that's been going on for decades. Uh, so we saw what was happening in these communities, we, we were motivated to try and improve the situation in those communities, both by getting compensation, but also critically trying to get Shell to clean up the oil contamination in those communities. So one aspect of Matilda's reporting that I found particularly powerful was the discussion of the impact on maternal health. So one of the people that Lee Day introduced me to was a woman called Esther Catty, and she is a midwife in the region. And she's been a midwife in the region for some decades now. And she speaks incredibly emotionally and quite disturbingly on what she has witnessed and what she describes as an oil sickness leading to more and more stillbirths, deformed babies being born, mothers in unexplained extreme agony. And there's no doubt in her mind that this is connected to the oil contamination in the region. And something that really did interest me was when I spoke to Shell, I challenged them on the apparently fraught relationships they had with the local community. They sent me a long list of the ways that they have actually had a net beneficial gain to the community, for example, by investing in this maternity hospital in the region. And of course, I looked up the maternity hospital, it's 500 kilometers south of the mm. community in which in which Esther has to deal with the fallout of the pollution with just herself and mm. other, other women in the community. Having been to Esther's clinic as well, the water there smells contaminated that she has to use at her clinic when caring for children. But as well as the kind of reporting from Esther on this and her story, that's corroborated by studies that have been done. So a recent yeah. study showed that the oil pollution in the Niger Delta doubles 
the rate of infant mortality there. And the authors of that study, it was a Swiss study, estimated there were 10,000 excess deaths of children up to the age of three months in one year in the Niger Delta because of oil pollution. So it, it's a devastating and real problem. Yeah, Paddy, I'd love to hear your expertise on this from your research. I think for me, it's, it's really heartbreaking that we should be talking about net gains in these kinds of circumstances. I think communities shouldn't have to pick and choose. It shouldn't be a case of you gave us this, we give you back that. Because it is clear that there is danger, there's risks, there are real threats, there are real problems to these communities as a result of the oil and gas exploration. And let's not forget that most of the benefits aren't necessarily only enjoyed by those communities, but instead they're enjoyed by so many people who are perhaps not as closely connected to the dangers, to the risks and to the problems directly resulting from the exploration activity. And I think that in itself is a problem, you know, and Beyond compensating specific cases, the long-term impacts aren't being dealt with. And sometimes we don't even know what they are. You know, we can't necessarily, I mean, those reports are there now, so we can see there are links between infant mortality, morbidity, and the exploitation or exploration of oil and gas, and the dangers resulting from that process. But I think beyond that, there are also other risks that we perhaps do not know about, and we cannot even estimate correctly and completely at this stage. And that in itself creates more problems. And beyond that, it complicates other developmental issues as well. So we talk about gender inequality, we talk about the gaps between rural and urban areas, all of these are also connected to the risks, the problems resulting from the oil and gas exploration and exploitation activities. So I think if we consider it holistically, part of it comes down to just equating these people with some economic value that isn't necessarily regarded as the same or with the same importance as whatever benefits are occurring from the oil and gas to the investors in that sector. And that in itself is a problem. We should say, I think, before we sort of move on and talk about kind of perhaps some trends in litigation more generally as well, that Matilda spoke to Shell for her reporting. And those interested can go to our website and or pick up a magazine and, and read a little bit more of the things that they've told Matilda that they, they are doing in the area. Um, and also that it, when this legal action was was started, it was actually quite difficult to bring it to a UK court because because Royal Dutch Shell says that they may, maybe are not directly responsible for the pipeline in the Niger Delta itself. Matthew, can you just tell us a little bit about the sort of complicated story, briefly summarised of how of why actually this legal action is happening in the UK and how that's been a little bit of a challenge? Yeah, of course. So one of one of the significant things about the litigation is it's not just against Shell Nigeria; it's against Shell PLC or Royal Dutch Shell, as it was, as you said, Alan. The company based here in London, headquartered in London, and the claimants argue that Shell PLC here in London is responsible for the oil contamination they are experiencing in Nigeria. And as you say, Ellen, when, when the case first started, Shell disputed that and said it has, it has nothing to do with us in England. It's a purely Nigerian problem. Go to Nigeria and bring your case there. The court here it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court here found that actually there was a good arguable case that Shell PLC, the London company, is responsible for the harm that the claimants are suffering in Nigeria, which I think is, is a reflection on how it's not a Nigeria local problem. It is a global problem. And when it's Shell, it's particularly a UK problem as well. 
operating out of London, profits flowing through London over decades, billions of dollars of profits from these operations in Nigeria. And there was recognition of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, taking that kind of global perspective, these litigation cases such as the one that is now being brought in London with Shell and with your clients, Matthew, it's just one among among many. Matilda, could you explain for us a little bit more of kind of the wider landscape of how often we're seeing these cases? Sorry, particularly just globally? Yeah, or? climate litigation cases around the world, they're becoming more common. You know, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, we are definitely seeing a prolific rise in the number of climate cases being placed but this is all a fairly recent history and one of the reasons or perhaps one of the real strengths of climate litigation is that it with every successful case a new precedent is set and every successful case paves the way for more successful cases and empowers more people to be able to seek the retribution that they that they are seeking one of the stats also jumped out to me in your your piece is is this Um, You said climate cases worldwide have more than doubled since 2015 and approximately a quarter of the 2000 cases um, in total being filed after 2020. So we're seeing, as you say, this really steep rise in climate litigation cases. And so this is a reflection, yes, of more precedents being set. And it's also a reflection of, of a reforming of the legal landscape because laws are only as powerful you know, as the policy spaces in which they in which they operate. And you're seeing more legal grounds being written that enable lawsuits. For example, attempts across the EU to enforce duty of vigilance or due diligence laws. That means companies have an obligation to legally justify what they're doing before they do it rather than after, which tackles kind of one of the biggest problems with climate litigation in in being how, how long it takes. And particularly with these due diligence things, I think maybe one of the difficulties that that could address are these multinational, mm-hmm. this, this difficulty of, of placing accountability in one jurisdiction when these companies are multinational and often structurally designed to make it as difficult as possible to place legal accountability. Mm-hmm. And so as we have laws written that address the weaknesses and the loopholes in the current climate law space hopefully we will see things get better the question is though how quickly will it get better because the one thing we don't have on our side in the climate change battle is time mm-hmm. Paddy, i can see you nodding indeed i mean this this issue of the rise in the number of litigation i think that's very interesting and especially when we think about the communities in the niger delta but broadly speaking across africa as well because if we look at the main databases, there are very few cases recorded from Nigeria and other African countries, which I think is curious. Speaking specifically about Nigeria, the communities in the Niger Delta have a longer history of suing oil companies operating in that region, usually on the tort laws or other common law um, remedies. So torts, nuisance, negligence, Rylands and Fletcher. So if you look at the cases at the high courts, there have been 
attempts by communities to hold the companies to account. But what we see is that in recent times, what has gained a lot of attention have been these cases that have been brought in other jurisdictions, so basically transnational litigation, and especially cases that have now taken advantage of the status of the multinational companies and their connections to parent companies in other jurisdictions like the the UK, the US, the Netherlands. So I think that the communities have to be applauded for being resourceful and trying to hold the companies to account based on you know the laws at the time that they had. And to really understand the dynamics, we perhaps have to go a step further you know, to look into the ways in which the local systems and the local communities have tried to take advantage of the, ju- the judiciary in Nigeria itself and the, the loopholes there. Because ask, ask ourselves the question, how many communities can actually come to the UK? How many leaders are there? How many other NGOs are there that can actually stand for these thousands and perhaps even millions of communities that are faced by this uh, problem in the Niger Delta region? So I think really um, the numbers show a rise. The legal developments in terms of corporate due diligence laws, climate change laws, human rights laws also account for that. But I think beyond that, if we look to the previous history of local communities holding the companies to account by using, say, common law, we'll find that there are even more cases and we can see more ways in which the communities have tried to seek justice and in very many cases have failed due to, say, considerations of economic value of this sector, you know, compared to the rights and the interests of the communities involved directly. I mean, one of the things that I would love us to to come back to before before we do finish is is that question of whether the mass of cases now that we are seeing and as you say all these other stories that don't even get that far whether that's starting to act as a deterrent at all um to these big corporations whether it's making them sort of think twice about you know perhaps putting more into upgrading infrastructure which is something Matilda talks about in the piece to prevent oil leaks that kind of thing Matthew I'd love to hear from you on this before we finish I will come back on that. I think it's a really interesting question. I just, just first, in terms of the, the litigation, because I think a, a shortcoming of the litigation in some ways is that it is quite specific, it's quite localised, it's individuals or individual communities. What, one of the reasons, as Matilda said, one of the reasons we want to do these cases is because of the precedent they set and the wider impact. So, for example, in, in the Niger Delta, Shell are looking to divest. They're looking to sell all their onshore operations at the moment. And they're looking to do that as soon as they can uh, and move out of, of onshore Niger Delta. And a, and a key question for us, and I think the arguments in this litigation we're bringing uh, give the answers to these questions I- I- to a large extent, is what are Shell's responsibilities for cleaning up the wider Niger Delta? Um, are they going to leave a legacy of, of chronic oil pollution? Or are, are they actually responsible? Are they required to clean up properly before they leave? In terms of the, the broader question, um, uh, does this drive corporate change? Absolutely, one of the reasons we do this litigation is to deter companies, to drive corporate change, to try and force that corporate change. I think to some small extent that that may have happened, but unfortunately, I think the change it maybe has encouraged more is more of the the greenwashing, more of a presentational change. So companies being conscious that they have to present in a certain way, 
paying lawyers, consultants in, in, in London, huge amounts of money to enable them to do that and to ensure that they, they comply with laws or at least don't overexpose themselves to litigation. But in terms of meaningful change and putting environmental practices ahead of profit, I'm not convinced there has been that, that substantial a change in that area. And, and Matthew, so what's next for the communities that you're representing in Ogale and Bile? What, what's the next stage of their case? We have a hearing in July where the trial date will be set, we hope. And we are pushing for there to be a trial in early 2025 or late 2024. And we hope that then the, the communities, the claimants will have the chance to go to court to tell their story and the judge will decide whether or not Shell is responsible for this damage. So that's the next phase we have. Ms. Hilda, just to come back to you. So yeah. for you, what's your, what's next in the story for you? What are you looking out for? What are the questions you're asking the people you want to speak to? So one of the things that has struck me always when reporting on this story and similar stories, and it's like Matthew just said with the priority being greenwashing, it's like Petty has also mentioned in her interview, that the main thing on these companies' mind when they're going through these procedures seems to be how is it going to be received by the wider public, by shareholders, how is it going to affect them on a reputational level, which means that I have a role as a journalist, and we all do in the media, because climate litigation is a really important weapon, but without press interest and without pressure on policymakers, it's by and large unloaded as a weapon. And so the next step is seizing every opportunity that the law provides, whether it's having a trial date set, whether it's having these communities give testimonies in public, seizing those opportunities to create as much press interest and as much public momentum as possible. I, I just wanted to say one thing very quickly, which is that what we've been talking about is not really climate change litigation here. It, it's very localised. And to drive broader change in terms of carbon emissions and the change to the planet that is impacting so many countries, people around the world, and will do even more in coming years, whether it's rising water levels in Pacific Islands or cyclones or, or whatever else, at the moment, litigation isn't equipped really to deal with that huge problem apart from around the fringes with this sort of litigation and challenges to governments and some sort of challenges to greenwashing and corporations. So I think that is, I hope that litigation will move in that direction in the next five or ten years. Just to make a negative point. Yeah, absolutely. And Peddy, final word to you before we wrap up. Yes, thank you. I just wanted to say that I remember speaking to someone about the divestments of Shell in the Niger Delta. And I asked specifically, is this a good thing or not? And they were skeptical because they said, actually, this is taking away the tools that the communities even have. So being able to just go and protest in front of Shell's facilities, you don't have that option anymore because they're not there. And like Matthew mentioned and Matilda as well, if you can't hold them physically, you can't lay any claims on them physically, they leave and the environment is still polluted, then what other options do you have? That's one thing. And I think the second thing is, 
thinking about corporate due diligence, we also have to be clear that it goes beyond reporting on what you want to do or how you plan to avoid the risks, human rights impacts, environmental pollution and all of that. But it also requires that companies actively review that process and when damage does occur, take action. Because otherwise we have a situation where it's a case of well, I've reported and I've done my bit as a company. So that's something we also have to be mindful of. And finally, I think it's important that we think about the justice of this as not only compensating those who are directly affected, but ensuring that the moving away from the fossil fuel sector does not also compound the development challenges. So this issue around just transition is one that we also have to emphasize as a priority in the conversation of climate litigation and climate justice. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks so much, Peddy. And I think yeah, we're increasingly seeing that question of climate justice come into to broader discussions, whether it's about you know, emissions or your know, divestment from fossil fuels. So that's for sure something that we will continue to look at. And thanks so much for sharing that point. That is all we're going to have time for today. So thank you so much to Matilda, Petty and Matthew for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do grab a copy of our latest issue of Prospect magazine, which includes Matilda's excellent essay, plus our cover story, The Prince versus the Press by Tom Lamont, which tells the inside story of another legal case, the bitter battle between Prince Harry and the newspapers that hounded him, how the phone hackers of the past have switched sides to help him. There's also writing from Laura Barton, David Willits, Donald McIntyre, Imogen West Knights and many more. That's all for today though, so thanks very much and listen out next week for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.